You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to uh, the rebirth of my podcast. It's no longer Biojack Radio, it is Body dot io radio for uh, input output and uh, we'll explain that later somewhere on the website but for the kickoff i was lucky enough to score rob wolf for the morning uh well not the whole morning probably just like 15 20 minutes since it's christmas season but um <clears throat> you know we'll still still be able to get a, a good radio show in i'm excited um rob staying quiet you want to say hi rob Hey, I, I was just going to say that since I'm out on parole, then it, it's a good time to grab me. So perfect, right. perfect timing. Perfect. And um, and actually, Dr. Rocky Patel will be on the show as a regular guest as well. And he's here now. Hey, Kiefer. Hey, Rob. Hey, man. How, how are you doing, Not Doc? too bad. I'm sure you probably needed to reprieve anyways from all the uh, heresy that's going on in the stores, so... <laughs> it, it was, uh, you know, luckily we got out early and so it wasn't too, too bad, but, um, it was something else today. Like it, it, uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of shopping in general. So, and I'm, I'm kind of like, a, it's almost like a spec ops tactical, you know, high altitude, low, low, low open, uh, kind of gig. I'm, I'm like, how, how can I get into and out of William Sonoma as quickly as possible, you know, and, uh, I'll, I'll pay extra money just to get out faster. So it, it uh. It was all the shopping I'm, I'm, I'm geared up to do this season, for sure. Well, sounds like a drone strikes are what's needed in the future, huh? <laughs> That's what I've suggested, but my wife really hasn't signed off on that yet. So, yeah. See, that would be fantastic if you could just <clears throat> go on to Amazon.com and then click a few buttons, and it's literally just delivered via robot truck, which I think they're actually working on. And then you don't have to deal with anybody at all. Yeah, and nobody really likes me in person. So it's not like they really want to interact with me with these <laughs> gifts or on the purchasing or anything. So it, for all parties con- you know, concerned, it would be much better to just you know, have me forward this thing to their front door and I, I, I don't have to talk to them. They don't have to talk to me and it, it, it would be great. See, that, see, I've taken it to the next step where they don't even want to know I exist anymore. So <laughs> I, I don't have to worry about gifts, getting them, receiving them, seeing anybody. You know, I'm, pr- I'm pretty well set for the holiday season. So it's, it's worked out well the last couple of years. Well, as usual, you are setting the trend, and I am merely following that. Right? So. I mean, you have to also take into account that you know, Kiefer's got the ideal situation, right? You know, it's just him and Cooper, um, his dog, whereas it's you and me, we've got, you know, wife, kids. There's complications there, right? <laughs> Man, so, like you, you don't, like you can't even believe. Yeah, yeah. For the, and, you know, even uh, prior to the wife and kid, I wouldn't have had the, the stones to step up to a dog. I was always a cat person. <laughs> The, the level of commitment and neediness involved with the dog, I, it, it just freaked me out. Like it, it, it pulled up all kinds of like inner child issues of, of commitment and betrayal and all that. And I, I just couldn't deal with it. Whereas a cat, you know, it's, it, they, they see you as a, a provider of food and water and occasionally some affection, but they don't really need that. They could get by fine without you and possibly even better. So whereas the dog will psychologically implode without human, human interaction. Yes, that, that's just too much for me to, to deal with. <laughs> see, I, too much responsibility. I, see, I, I like having him. Just you know, it's somebody there to welcome me whenever I come home. He's always excited to see me. You know, he's always up for a walk, which you know people rarely are ever up to just go randomly on a walk. Let alone convincing them to poop on the side of the street with you, which Cooper's more than happy to do. Um, you know, it just it's just a much more enjoyable experience for me. Whereas you know, you, you really got to get the right cat. Um, I, I kind of hate having an animal that hides from you all the time and only comes out for food mm. and otherwise wants you to clean up after them. Okay, you're, 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 you're making a, a strong case for a dog. I'm, I'm, I'm warming <laughs> up to this. But so you've, you've already got your, your excess complications. You know, I just basically traded a wife and kids for a dog is, is what it comes down to. You downsized already. You did. You downsized before even hitting middle age, which is smart. Right. It's smart. I had my midlife crisis at eighteen, so I've been riding that ever since. I I think that's smart. 
So I guess we could talk about health related stuff. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know. Well, you you know, I've been uh, I've been rattling. Have you guys been following the whole uh, resistant starch story floating around the interwebs and paleosphere and all that jive? Uh, no, what's this one? Although I, I'm familiar with resistant starch, but only from like research papers and stuff. So what's this? You know, some some folks who, uh, uh, you know, historically, and I, I'm definitely in this camp. I, I know both of you guys are in this camp where if we see somebody with some, uh, uh, say, like some blood sugar dysregulation, usually we recommend kind of a, a low-carb approach, and that, that works great. We get great uh, changes in the, the blood lipids and uh, glucose control and everything. But some folks have been recommending going more of a resistant starch route, like actually going like two to four tablespoons of like potato starch or tapioca starch and the the theory behind this and it, it's still pretty convoluted to me on a on a mechanistic side but is that you are feeding the colonic bacteria uh you're getting like some butyrate and some other uh, short chain saturated fats produced you're getting a decrease in systemic inflammation like this this uh uh, growth of these beneficial bacteria seem to mitigate some some like uh, small. It, interestingly, it changes the pH throughout the whole digestive tract in a way so that you end up with a decrease in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, an increase in the bacteria in the colon, which is theoretically where where we should have a lot more. Mm-hmm. You get some butyrate and and uh, uh, you know some short short chain saturated fats, which seem to have benefit for the immune system and modulating the immune response and whatnot. And these people are able to then show better blood glucose control. They're able to consume more carbs in general. Markers of systemic inflammation seem to go down. And it's it's really interesting. And I've got to say, even for myself, I've, I've continually, over the last like 13 years of tinkering with like low carb and paleo and everything, it's been hard for me to find a a sweet spot. And Kiefer, when you were on my podcast, I, I was talking to you still about some of this, you know, where I, I have really good mental clarity on, say, like a ketogenic or a cyclic ketogenic approach, but doing uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and mixed martial arts and stuff like that, like I just can't figure out the right air-fuel mixture where like I'm, I'm not in like blood sugar slumps, and uh, but yet I, I still have enough uh, muscle glycogen to, to get recovery, and I've tinkered with all kinds of like carb backloading and, and cyclic ketogenic and everything, and I actually about two months ago started doing this uh, potato starch in the morning, and I, I've i got to say, like, my digestion is better, uh, I just got some blood work back, and Rocky, you you and I have some similar background in this, and in, in having some elevated LDLP, and my LDLP has just plummeted since I've been tinkering with this, hmm. and, and I, I had had some Elev- slightly elevated C-reactive protein, slightly elevated fibrinogen, and literally the only thing that I've done is I've started doing this, um, act- you know, the resistant starch, and then generally eating more carbs more consistently. And I, uh, my performance is good. My blood, sh- like my glycemia, seems really solid. Like I don't get these peaks and troughs. Uh, it- it's not as bulletproof as as when you're ketogenic, where you just you know, you feel like you could go like 20 days without eating and, and you know, you would, you would have the same cognitive function. So it's right. not that bulletproof, but it, it's really, really good. And I, I, uh, I, I'm, I, it, it so flies in the, the face of what I, I've been tinkering with, you know, uh, for the past several years. But I, I've had this sense that the uh, gut bacteria, gut endobiome is, is possibly more important than like our protein carb fat deal um you, you know i think that when we start eating refined foods that possibly that's what kicks the the gut bacteria into kind of a, a, a disordered or or a pathological state and that the then the way that they are are growing in us then maybe more the you know what we're seeing manifest in like uh uh glycemic control issues and systemic inflammation, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, all that sort of jive. So, so that's, people have probably either turned off the podcast or have shot themselves and Keithers <laughs> going to forever regret bringing me on right. the show. So. No, no, no. This is, this is interesting because <clears throat> I remember when I was writing Carb Night, was that, man, I think it's, we're getting on like eight years ago, nine years ago now. You know, I found about a bunch of research on resistant starch, which I'd never heard of. And, um, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, like basically if you're eating a raw potato, 
there's not a lot of usable carbohydrate there. You're not going to get a spike in insulin levels, blood sugar. Um, it, it's essentially at that stage what we call resistant starch, and so it resists digestion. But once heated or cooked, then it actually becomes usable. Um, so, which is interesting, which flies in a lot of face of, I, I've read so many nutrition books that are they're like, fiber is fiber no matter what you do to it. Cut it up, cook it, it's always fiber, which you know, just completely misses the point. And I, I think one of the studies did a calculation and something like 50 to 60% of all fiber that we do ingest is resistant starch. So, you know, if, if you eat a raw potato, which kind of sounds like Rob's doing every morning, uh, you're, you're not really getting carbohydrates per se. What you're doing is getting a fiber load that is being digested not by you, but by your, your gut biome. And so in the research... Um, they were doing a lot of comparison with different types of fiber and their potential health benefits because, you know, anybody who was on the high fiber bandwagon, what, like 20 years ago, was like, oh, you know, high fiber diet's a cure for everything. And then lo and behold, it turns out, well, it doesn't really correlate to anything. And it might have just been we were kind of missing the point. might have been particular types of starch. And um, it's, the resistant starch sounds interesting. You know, my guess is, and you might have a better take on this, Rob, or or Rocky, if you want to chime in. He's he's kind of looking zoned out as our uh, sound insulation <laughs> falls off the wall. Um, he, he's he's pretty much in charge of retaping the sound insulation every time it falls off the wall. But um, Velcro would be tough because you'd hear that shred off the right, wall slowly. Right. Well, you know the bad thing about it is I'm the Neanderthal of the group, so you know I'm trying to I'm bringing the IQ points down here, so. <laughs> Well, you know, maybe the resistance... But yet you're the only one with a, a professional degree out of <laughs> Right? Do right. you see how that works? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah so, so back to that, you know, maybe the resistant starch is therefore more digestible by, by the gut biome, which gives us more beneficial effects. I don't know. Because if you go in, went back to paleo periods, I, I really doubt, even if we came across tubers very often, which is doubtful since they originated in South America... You know, the tubers we did probably come across, so they, they most likely weren't cooking them. Uh, we only have evidence of cooked tubers back to like 20,000 years ago, 30,000 years ago in South America. So they would have been eating raw tubers, and they probably would have been doing it for the fluid more than anything in the more arid climates. So, you know, I've seen some of the chatter going on. I just haven't had time to invest in chewing and digesting some of that, no pun intended. Yeah, like a raw potato. But, um... You know, it is an interesting thought, but I guess, you know, the other questions I would ask is, well, are you replacing that with something else from the diet? So were you eating that refined carbohydrate and now you're going to replace it with the resistant starch? Um, what is the context of, the, of that, you know, being placed into the, into the machinery? And, you know, I guess the other question would be is, you know, do you, would you get similar gut effects? You know, if you're looking for that, you know, the butyric acid and the, and the food for the gut bacteria and the gut biome, you know, would a source of uh you know butter and broccoli is that going to give you a similar effect you know i mean without the well well, that's a good question did you just add this in rob or i just added it in okay yeah yeah just i just added it in and and then you know i've i've increased dietary carbohydrate intake and now i'm I'm just eating i i get all my meat grass-fed luckily we have a really good source so i i don't avoid fatty meats but i'm not really adding much in the way of fat to my meals at this point so like i'll eat a big chunk of meat, a lot of veggies, and then like a, a sweet potato or, or something like post-workout, I still kind of stick the bulk of my carbs post-workout and then other meals, you know, like before my my dinner meal isn't particularly carby. I, I do jujitsu at noon, and so my my uh, lunchtime meal is is pretty carby. So, it, you know, the, there have been some things that have, have changed, but I, I've actually increased carb load, uh, have decreased fat intake. But, you know, Rocky, to your, to your point, I think something that's pretty interesting in this you know and it's kind of funny where all this stuff starts kind of dovetailing together you know when the the vegan scene they start trying to draw this correlation between like human guts and and uh, say like chimpanzee or gorilla guts and stuff Mm -hmm. like that with something that gets missed in that whole story is they have these uh uh, the other pongids uh, you know of which we're we're closely related to um they have a large fermentive capacious gut but the the product of that that fermentation like these, these critters are eating lots of vegetable matter, but that, that vegetable matter is getting converted into short chain saturated fats. Like what is 
interfacing with their physiology is not carbohydrate, it's actually fat. Right. And, and, and they're actually more fat-fueled than carbohydrate-fueled. And I, I think that it makes kind of an interesting, and you know, it's, it's observational. I don't know that you, you could really uh, design a study. You know, this is where like so much of the evolutionary theory gets really tough to prove or disprove one way or the other, but you had a source of butyrate and these short-chain saturated fats as a fermentative, uh, uh, you know, more like a chimpanzee, but then it would, you start looking at like the australopithecines and the use of tools and breaking open bones and breaking open uh, skull casings and stuff like that and mm-hmm. increasing fat intake. And then immediately our, we've got a, a different source of butyrate and, and the right. short chain and long, longer chain saturated fats and the EPA and DHA and all that sort of jive. And so you were still providing a substrate that metabolically was really important, but you now are releasing the pressure of having a really, really, really large fermentation kind of vat going on, and you could down downgrade to a smaller fermentation vat. But you know the, uh, the you know the, uh, you know optimum human functioning. You know what 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 is that uh, air fuel mixture look like with regards to uh, you know different types of fiber resistant starch. Uh, 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 homeostatic soil organisms that we're getting out of water and from food sources and all that sort of jive, eating the uh, the intestinal contents of of uh, you know hunting game and stuff like that. Like there was a great piece from the the Human Gut Project talking about the the Hudza killing and and butchering a a gazelle. And one of the first things that they ate were the the semi fermented, semi digested uh, intestinal contents and and like the amount of bacteria and stuff like that is just staggering you know so but it's interesting it's pretty darn interesting which you know they still do in some place like thailand and indonesia when they go to slaughter a a bull or a cow that's one of the things they eat you know they open up the digestive tract and eat that partially digested fermented um grass matter what whatever it is depending on how far it is down in the digestive tract um the, the, so, the kimchi on the hoof, yeah. Right. So, so he still there's another Robism. <laughs> Rocky's face was just utter disgust right then. Um, <laughs> so, so we still see that, and you know the the curiosity is, and like you said, Rob, what what's the ideal mixture? And you know the problem is that a lot of these conversations become over generalized. You know, you got somebody who's really sick and metabolically deranged are they going to be able to solve everything by you know adding i don't know what do you think you eat? potato like, start yeah right. by by gnawing on a raw potato every morning and the the question is or the my answer would be it's unlikely but for the athlete who's already somewhat healthy or even just you know possibly deranged slightly that that could be a, a huge effect um and then again to rocky's point could we just feed somebody a bunch a bunch of ghee and see the same kind of benefits or results. So maybe that's what you should do if you want to self-experiment. Ditch your potato starch and replace it with a tablespoon or two of ghee every morning. You know, I, I, I've <laughs> eaten that way for a long a long time. And, and uh, this is some of the interesting stuff that's coming out of the, the Human Gut Project where they actually had some comparisons of uh, lower carb eaters versus uh, higher carb eaters, and and uh, they, they, because of the paleo scene, like they're getting some some interesting folks where they're you know the bulk of their carbs are like you know fruit, veggies, roots, shoots, tubers. So I mean it, you know it's mm-hmm. kind of quite ancestral looking, and when they compare that with what the Hudza are eating, like it, it looks pretty similar in kind of composition, and then the the gut flora is pretty similar between these these uh you know relatively high plant matter consuming like paleo type folks and the high plant matter consuming actual paleo folks being the the hudza and then uh, what what was interesting that these guys found was that the the really low carb eaters they had lower total gut bacteria across the board and they, they definitely i think that low carb is a fantastic first intervention for like a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth but then what they found is that you started getting a shifting away from what we would classically call healthful, you know, health promoting bacteria and a shift towards the potential for some pathogenic bacteria. But the total bacterial load was very, very low because you're just not providing a lot of roughage for these these critters to live on. So, you know, it's almost like 
the profile may not be a hundred percent healthy, but the uh, the the total load is decreased. And what you know, uh, uh, Kiefer, you mentioned something earlier. Like you know, I, I guess twenty, maybe thirty years ago, everybody was really spun out about uh, 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 fiber. And one of the you know, we were vilifying cholesterol, and one of the things that was known is that cholesterol can associate with with different uh, types of fiber, and that we are removing some cholesterol out of out of the body um, when, when it associates with fiber, and then we, you know, when we defecate, then we we uh, we lose that. But right. another piece of this that I've been looking at is in the state of say like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or or low grade sepsis. When you get endotoxins, uh, specifically lipopolysaccharide that goes into our, our system, mm -hmm. we get an inflammatory response, we get an upregulation of the immune response. And interestingly, the primary thing that removes lipopolysaccharide from our system is actually our lipoproteins. And uh, mm -hmm. another interesting piece of that is that uh, a, the, the smaller the lipoproteins are, the better homology there is in attaching to the, the lipopolysaccharide. So there's actually a, a protein on uh, li lipoproteins called li lipopolysaccharide binding protein. And so not only do the do lipoproteins move nutrients around the body, but it's also part of the innate immune response. And in a in an acute immune response uh, to to say like a very severe sepsis. And Rocky, you'll 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 know this far better than Kiefer. I will will. But you know when somebody's in acute sepsis. Their, uh, their blood cholesterol levels actually plummet and their lipoproteins plummet because those lipoproteins are being utilized to remove this li uh, LPS out of the, the system, toxins. which is very pro-inflammatory. Yeah, all the toxins causes liver derangement and whatnot, but at a, at a low-grade level, this low-grade kind of bleeding in of, of lipopolysaccharide into the system, there's some great both mouse and, and human model uh, stuff looking at, at the, the, the uh, lipopolysaccharide is probably the precipitating element in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It, you know, that it really primes the pump for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to start taking off. So it's it's interesting to me that if, if there was something to this resistant starch story or just re replenishing gut bacteria back to a healthy level, then we heal the gut, we reduce systemic inflammation, we reduce the, the chronic load of lipopolysaccharide on the system, and then we have less need for high, both elevated levels of lipoproteins and uh, they don't need to be as small to be able to clear the lipoproteins more effectively. Like it, it, it all kind of dovetails in right. together from the systemic inflammatory kind of deal. So well, it's interesting. It's really kind of mind blowing for me right now. It's, it's very, very interesting. Well, you know, Rob, I think the interesting factor you mentioned was that your LDLP, your you know, your cholesterol dropped, and your inf and more importantly, your systemic inflammatory markers dropped. So that's something that you know that piques my interest and is something that would further me looking into maybe using resistant starch in, in a certain patient population. I, I guess the question then becomes: Is because you had you know increased that amount, how much you know? You, so when you look at the cholesterol. Um, production or absorption, you know, is that maybe in a way altering the way you are metabolizing cholesterol and then maybe that's why you got the positive benefit. So um, it's, yeah. it, it seems yeah, it, really it, plausible. It, yeah. It, it, and, you know, I, I was, I, I'm also a high uh, absorber. Okay. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I had metabolically like lots of different things uh, stacked against me. Uh, it, the original numbers and I'm, I'm forgetting like the, the original it, and this is I had never had my LDLP checked until about two years ago but a, a, a year before that I had my blood work just generally done for the the I caveman show and like my my total blood lipids had always been really low like uh, total cholesterol was low HDL was I had LDL was low clearly we don't you, like that's um almost like you know uh, chicken entrails and tea leaves we we now know at this point like it, it kind of tells you a little bit of stuff but a year later I, I was having all kinds of problems which we we figured out was uh, some thyroid issues some cortisol issues i had super high tsh i had high reverse t3 I, I think i had just crushed myself like trying to do crossfit trying to uh uh do that that i caveman show supporting the book and everything and so i i took my ldlp from I want to say like 2,200 down to about 1,400 in about six months of basically dealing with cortisol issues, dealing with um, 
with uh, uh, thyroid issues more more specifically, and that cleaned up a bunch of stuff. But it was still a little high, and I still had a little bit of stuff that that was you know as as cleanly as I eat and everything. I was like, I, I shouldn't be having this problem. And then since we've tinkered with this resistant starch piece, then my LDLP has gone down to eight seven eight eight seventy five eight eight ninety five something like that. So it really you know it went from like twenty two hundred. Uh, dropped down to about 1,400, 1,500 with uh, addressing thyroid issues. And then theoretically, you know, I'll, I'll make an assumption here that I've, in quotations, addressed gut permeability, addressed gut health or whatever. Maybe that's right. Maybe it's wrong. But that's kind of the assumption that I'm making. And that has further drugged the LDLP. And I, I can't off the top of my head remember what my, my C-reactive protein was before and after. But I mean, it went from marginal to really good basically and that ldlp has just improved shockingly yeah my guess would be your thyroid functions probably improved significantly as well even though even from the standpoint of where you went from 2200 to 1400 and from 1400 to 857 i have to imagine the thyroid continues to improve you know as you know <clears throat> thyroid hormone is one of the important implications for ldl receptor activity so you know as that right. gets better that's going to improve things right. as well and it's interesting so, that so the whole thing could still just be a thyroid improvement maybe hmm. you know it, that's such a interesting scenario because you know most doctors check tsh um and maybe if you're lucky they're taking t3 t4 if you're even luckier they're doing reverse t3 but you know that's you know a lot of times i kind of see patients coming in and it's it's more voodoo to me at this point in time than anything else because you know in medical school all you learn is to check the tsh but i, I look at these more and more often and and always kind of put a fudge factor in for that. Um, and I think the other thing is that you mentioned is a hyperabsorber. That's certainly something that's very intriguing to me as well. And I'm a hyperabsorber as well. So, you know, when I went on a on a really kind of high fat, 60, 80% fat diet, I basically shut my liver down. My liver didn't make any cholesterol. It was all coming from my gut. So I, mm -hmm. I find those things really kind of fascinating and I'm still kind of working through that as well, you know. And then you you still have the experience too of of having done a uh, carotid intimal thickness scan before and seeing some calcification before ketogenic and uh, like a fairly advanced like vascular age and then you went ketogenic you saw the LDLP numbers go up but yet the actual signs of pathology basically disappeared. Yeah, so I had uh, you know a small little speed bump basically heterogeneous plaque in my left carotid bulb rechecked it, you know, after the dietary intervention and, and it went away. And, and, and certainly the end of the, the, the intimal lining also improved. So the very inner lining of the carotid already got healthier as well, you know, and as one caveat I had to put in that is it came along with some weight loss too. So the question is, you know, really, was it the weight loss or was it the diet or was it both? And so that's, those are things that still kind of, you know, again, remain to be seen. And, and, you know, I see, see more people coming through and, and doing better with their lifestyle stuff. Hopefully, I have a better handle on it. But my guess is, when it, once all said and done, my guess is is going to be the weight loss. I, I think that, you know, if you're losing weight, you know, you are effluxing fat out of places that they don't want fat to be. So, obviously, mm -hmm. if you're, you're going to efflux fat out of your liver, you're going to efflux fat out of, your, out of your hip and probably out of your arteries as well. But certainly, I think that ketogenic approach is kind of the 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 approach on steroids maybe to to look at trying to reverse that stuff as fast as possible i can that's right. kind of the way i look at it it makes sense it makes sense yeah i'm <clears throat> especially you know that's i i think one thing that a lot of people ignore is we actually our body survives between two environments so you know we have the outside environment and the way we communicate to the body with that is like whether it's hot or cold and the food that we stick in our mouth but we have an internal environment too that's independent of us, that like our gut biome, and you you've got to think with as closely tied and as intimate to us as it is that it's going to have a large effect. And that's you know I I think Gary Tobbs asked me about gut bacteria like a year and a half ago, and just asked me what my take on it was. And my take at the time was it seems like there's still so much we don't know, we don't understand those interactions very well. And at the moment, I, the, uh, the, yeah, the things I hear about like, oh, well, you know, it's the butyric acid production and things like that. In my mind, that, that could be like a huge benefit, I'm sure, but um, it, it might be minor too. There might be a lot of other things that we, we don't know. That's one of those fields of studies where, just like you said earlier, I don't remember if it's exactly in reference to this, but it's kind of voodoo to me at the moment because... You know, you look at some of these mouse models where they they literally 
produce them in an entirely sterile environment and they make sure that they don't have any gut bacteria whatsoever and they're lean and healthy their entire lives whereas compared to their peers that do have it um they they start to gain weight so there's just like there's so much we don't know so these little things have become more and more interesting to me just because i've been looking at um what which which strains have we really studied and started to understand their place in the gut biome and what happens when those strains become out of out of sync um it's interesting a combination of two two strains um can't remember them both off the top of my head one of them is bifido yeah bifido like helveticus and then um another one longum um because the p i think yeah anyway those two when given in high quantities one actually there there's very little discharge from the colon so it is apparently colonating in the in the gut and the other one passes through pretty readily so it won't colonize but the two in combination when taken like will systemically decrease cortisol levels and they they don't have exactly what's going on that's causing that you know so the the assumption could be well those those two in place are possibly in in this particular population which was an average population was replacing or helping to shift the gut biome in a more healthy direction which was just reducing overall body stress you know we've we've got stress all around us we've got relationship stress we've got job stress we've got physical stress and most people ignore the gut stress you know that's where I think this whole gluten conversation has become so important. Like what you eat could be causing systemic stress on your body. Um, so at the moment in, in my mind, what all this gut bacteria conversation is really brought to light is the internal environment is possibly more important, at least as important as our external environment. And it's something we just like have a dearth of knowledge. I mean, our knowledge of microbes is exploding right now. You know, they're looking at um, the microbe content of soil in particular regions. If you just supplement the root system of certain plants with the right microbes that they need, you get twice the growth rate and you get half the pest problem because they're just healthier plants. And we didn't know any of that. And so basically that that's the stage we're at with humans now. We're at the stage of like finding out what that optimum combination is and so starting this topic off with the resistant starch was uh like actually caught me off guard quite a bit but it's like incredibly interesting you know i think the other thing that you may want to uh possibly look at would be you know would it be any benefit of cycling the resistant starch like you start cycle carbs i mean that would be the you know what is elite you know the minimum dose you need to get to make the effective changes in the gut microbiome. And we know those that my gut microbiome is pretty pretty sensitive to changes on a daily, if not weekly basis, right? Mm-hmm. So so maybe right. you, you know you look at, um, okay, I'm gonna do it three times a week, or I'm gonna cycle it once a week and, and, and see if there are any changes as well. It, it would like be- what's inter- the minimum effective dose yeah. on right. that, yeah. Right, it, it'd be interesting to, cause you know, I've seen a lot of studies on fructo-oligosaccharides, different chain lengths of those, and um, which gut bacteria that's the preferred food of for, you know, colonization and health and xylo oligosaccharides and, you know, but I haven't actually, and, and you know, there's this, okay, which one do we use to supplement with to feed our gut bacteria? And obviously these are somewhat exotic things to get in high concentrations, but until this conversation, I hadn't really, cause I haven't been paying attention to the internet very much at all recently. I, I hadn't even heard about this resistant starch and maybe it turns out that one of those components whether in potato starch or tapioca starch could actually be the ideal food for the ideal makeup of the biome yeah but and i think like you said uh and it's kind of funny like the the gut biome stuff is so fascinating but about two years ago i was just kind of like yeah, I'm never going to understand that. Right. Like, I'm just, it, I, I, I just, I've reached a CPU uh, uh, max out status and uh, somebody else is going to have to explain it to me. It's not going to be me that, that figures that one out. So, yeah. Oh, so you had to drop the bomb on my first podcast? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks. 
<laughs> you guys figure it out. I don't know what the hell is going on here. So I got enough things to try to figure out. I don't know if that, you know, I'll let the, the smarter people do that. <laughs> well, see, the problem is we're going to get off this podcast and nobody's going to hear from me for the next five days because this is all I'm going to look at because I want to catch up to what Rob just talked about and surpass. I don't, I don't know if you know this, Rob, but I usually try to pick topics off the bat where I feel like I'm going to know at least one or two things more than you. And today, oh, well, today I, you totally I, screwed I was, me over on that one. I, I was not going for a stumper there. <laughs> I, I, it's just the, the only thing that's been rattling around in my head. So, no, no, it, it, it's it's really interesting. It's a good topic. I uh, just wish I actually knew more to engage you at a more uh, technical level. Well, I, I got a feeling I'll be pulling articles left and right this week. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> Rocky's my source for articles now. You know, whenever I, I used to just pay for all those damn things, and it would it would cost a fortune to write articles on my website or whatever because I was pulling all these articles. And one day Rocky's like, "Why are you Why are you paying for these articles? I can get you whatever article you want. I've you know got this service or whatever." I'm like, "Why didn't you tell me that months ago? That would have been very much thousands of dollars ago, <laughs> right? Exactly. So now you know, I've kind of gone overboard a little bit. Like I think one day I sent him. What, probably like 20, 30 requests. I don't remember even what I was looking up, but I just like flooded him with article requests. But it's fascinating because I get the inner workings of Kiefer's mind. So it's a, then, <laughs> then it's up to me to try to kind of figure out how it all puts together because, I mean, you know, certainly some of the most of the articles I can kind of read and, and figure it out. But then he'll have these ones that he'll pull that has these dynamic equations. I'm sure it comes from his physics days. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> so It all fits together. That's all I can say. So what what else is uh, is uh, cooking with you guys? What, what what are the topics du jour? Well, I was going to ask you how are things going with Specialty Health. I know you have got a new position with oh, them, wow. and uh, you know I know you you kind of talk about it on the periphery, but I haven't really heard you really talk about it more in depth. And maybe that's by design, but maybe you can explain to people what Specialty Health is and what you're doing with them, and go from there. Yeah, yeah. You know, when I first moved to Reno. Gosh, two two and a half years ago now, I guess. Uh, I was here maybe three weeks, and then this guy, Dr. Jim Greenwald, emailed me, and he's like, "Hey, we heard you moved to town. We really like your stuff. Can you come down to the clinic and check out what we're doing?" And went down there, and Rock, Rocky, you know, you know, Greeny, and and uh, I went down to the clinic, and they were using like Gary Tob stuff and my stuff. They had uh, been working on a, a two-year pilot study with Reno Police and Reno Fire, uh, basically using basic, the yearly basic physicals that include some basic blood work, you know, total cholesterol, triglycerides, blood glucose, some BMI, and, and they would use that to, to flag people who looked maybe kind of suspicious, particularly folks that would, you know, for most general practitioners, they wouldn't look really all that problematic, but on a, a second kind of screening, looking at LDLP and uh, LPPLA2 and apoproteins and stuff like that, that these people clearly were at very high risk for uh, metabolic issues and, all, and also extensing from that, I guess, is uh, cardiovascular disease, stroke and heart attack. And they had done a two-year pilot study using, I, I think, 35 or 40 folks. The pilot study alone is estimated to have saved the, the city of Reno about $22 million. It had a 33 to 1 return on investment and basically I just started working with these folks and I, I guess the you know they had been doing low carb and what what I brought to the table was a little bit more of this paleo evolutionary biology kind of look really looking at sleep really looking at gut health looking at like some hormonal modulation like looking at it more cortisol and thyroid dysregulation and stuff like that and we've been working together for a couple of years now and what I'm trying to get going is a, a certification for everything from coaches to allied healthcare providers to physicians on the the basic kind of nutrition and evolutionary biology kind of kind of shtick that we need so that we can run risk assessments on people and then have practitioners that actually know what to do with this like we we spent a year uh running risk assessment on a variety of folks doing this for for quite a number of, of municipalities and inevitably what would happen, we would provide uh, recommendations on what to do. And because they didn't have a Rocky Patel, they, the person, you know, the, the uh, attending physician would inevitably stick people back on like high carb, low fat, um, you know, 
uh, kind of misuse of, of statins, and we, we didn't really get anywhere near the type of uh, benefits and, and effect that we had seen in-house. And so that's what we've been working on. So we, we've been putting together all the, the kind of legal corporate structure with this entity and uh, they, you know, hashing out all the, the curriculum. I, I'll, I'll, when this thing is done, I will have produced probably about a 700-page um, medical-type textbook for for the certification. Then we're going to have a lipidology chunk, and that's kind of the, the initial piece. And then we're going to have sleep experts and hormonal modulation experts come in and keep adding curriculum to this. But that's what we're getting going initially. And then some stuff that's going on kind of in the background with that is I, I've been working with some folks like Polyface Farms and the Savory Institute on this uh, sustainability side, like looking at, at grass-fed meat production and, and uh, trying to get that into gyms. And uh, I have this website that I've been working on called Farm to Gym, and it's basically trying to get a, a decentralized kind of market-oriented uh, food distribution network set up, which would support both the medical side of this and also the the gym side. So that's all the stuff that I've, I've been tinkering with. If people haven't checked out Alan Savory's talk on a, a reversing desertification using a, a grazing ruminants, it, it is totally amazing, totally fascinating. And it, it, it's worth mentioning that we've had a, a large, like a uh, Fortune 500 company that in, virtually anybody in the world would recognize her logo, recognize her name. And they're very interested in both the risk assessment and they're working with the Savory Institute too. Like they really feel like what the Savory Institute is doing is uh, going to be beneficial for food production and carbon sequestration and all kinds of interesting stuff. So that's um, that's what I've been doing and uh, trying to just keep my keep my head wrapped around that whole thing. There's a, a saying in the military that you uh, advance to the level of your incompetence, and I feel like I passed my incompetence about three great pay grades back. So I'm I'm just trying to hang on to this thing and not shit the bed on on everything that we're working on. Well, you know, as you know, we have uh, our, our program here, HeartFit for Duty, here in Phoenix. And do you find that with the first responders, that the food choices is one of those things that is one of the biggest hills to compl- compl- uh, climb in terms of trying to get them good quality sources of, 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 of foods? I mean, is that one of the things that you always find difficulty? Because, you know, always, you know, not only with first responders here in Phoenix, but patients, you know, it's always, oh, that, t- that costs too much money. You know, that's the first thing we hear. Right, out of the- right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've been lucky here in that the, uh, both the chief of police and the chief of fire are the are totally bought in on this. So we actually have some pressure both from the top and from the, the bottom kind of pushing this stuff. So we have pretty good buy-in here. And, and the the food production side, part of what I'm trying to do is really go after the, the you know CrossFit type gyms and other types of gyms that are very interested in kind of paleo and maybe this kind of libertarian politics type stuff like decentralization and whatnot and so i'm really trying to go after the people who are already bought into this idea but bring bring folks together when i was at the savory institute uh, a talk that we did in chico california a couple of weeks ago there were about 70 grass-fed meat producers there and i asked them you know how many of you are are selling in crossfit gyms or or similar gyms and virtually nobody raised their hand like one person did and it was one person who used to be a client of ours at NorCal Strength and Conditioning, and now they sell their meat in our gym. Huh. And I was like, well, did you guys know that there are tens of thousands of people around you that would you know, pay for all your stuff? And they're like, no. And I said, well, I'm going to ir- introduce you to all of them and, and, and introduce them to you. And uh, I, I think that you know, it's, it's still fringy. It's still very much uh, long tail type stuff. Like this isn't mainstream. This, this isn't going to happen at like Walmart tomorrow or, or something like that. But there's there's now, you know, several hundred thousand, maybe a couple million people tinkering with paleo, tinkering with CrossFit type, type stuff, and and that's a pretty good kernel to start an an alternative uh, food movement around, and and medical kind of kind of scene. One of the the goals that we have with specialty health is uh, we we just had a big sit down with a couple of the the big big testing labs are, around the United States, and I, I had kind of like a brave heart, uh, you know, Mel Gibson moment where I was like. Somebody's got to stand up and do something different. And really what we were talking to these folks about is we need some transparency in pricing. Uh, we need to bypass the third-party payer system. Uh, they need to make money. We need to make money. The consumer needs to have some skin in the game and not expect a, you know medicine to be free. 
And if we can if we can cut out all this middleman type stuff, then healthcare should be cheap. It should be effective. Doctors wouldn't want to leave the profession because it sucks. You know, all that they're doing is is paperwork. And so what we're really going to try to do with this whole system as we roll it out is make it a cash and carry and or health savings account oriented. And we're we're still kind of back and forth on whether or not, you know, do we do we write from the get go, not not take insurance on this? Do we, you know, do we save the insurance pieces for just like municipalities? Like we're still trying to figure that out. But I'm I'm really uh, very passionate and adamant about the idea of, of, you know, we've got to make this thing market based. Like the the whole uh, uh, kind of healthcare scene is is a cluster and it's gonna continue to be even more of a cluster. And we've got to create some some alternate ways of doing this stuff and if we paid for cars or we paid for TVs the way that we pay for medicine, like a, a, a flat screen TV would be like $40,000. Like, it, you know, it, it, the third party payer scene is, is just ridiculous and all the infrastructure that goes into that. And so if we can get some transparency and some market-based elements running in this and have a couple of million people who believe in this stuff, we've got the skinny end of the wedge crammed into a door to open it and start doing something different. Yeah, it's... in. It, and... I've I've actually thought about this. I unfortunately haven't been able to take as much action as you have, which is phenomenal, by the way. Let's just tell I just have to express my respect that you're tackling this problem. You know, one thing that's kind of underlying your your message there and that a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, we really don't have health insurance anymore in this country. What we have is just like basically health welfare you know insurance is meant to help protect you against catastrophic catastrophic events so car insurance is a perfect example if we had car insurance like we have health insurance then you would submit your gas bill every month to your insurance company because it's just you expect it to pay for everything related to your car you've got no you would have no culpability at that point and you know, we've stopped looking at our body as something we should take responsibility for. And that's just kind of fed into this system. It's no longer a question of, well, you might get sick or you might break a leg. It is now, if you are on the standard American diet that's recommended by the U.S. government, the fact is you will be sick and you will need health care until the end of your days. It's not insurance anymore. It's something that every american well not every american a vast majority of americans is utilizing and nobody's paying enough into it you know it's no longer everybody pays a little there's a big disaster and that little bit from a lot of people covers that one disaster it's everybody is a walking disaster every day and we we kind of need to get away from that mindset you know in addition to making it market-based you know, part of that is helping people understand like your health is your responsibility. It's not just something that you have to throw your hands up at and say, well, you know, when I'm 60 years old, I'm probably going to be obese, diabetic and get cancer. You know, you don't have to do that. You know, you can take some responsibility and you can live a very long, healthy life without ever having to worry about your health care. You know, so you break a leg. That's when you go use your health insurance. It is insurance for that catastrophic event. Um, as it is now, it's a completely untenable system. It's just not possible. We're paying way less into it than we expect to get back from it. And, you know, in, until we help people get to that mindset to help them understand that imbalance, you know, it's not going to get better. It's just going to get worse. You know, I think the other thing is that, you know, it's a business at this point in time. And, uh, you know, if we haven't hit that tipping point, it's coming soon just because you've got employers who need to save money so they can you know make sure their stock price stays high you've got third-party insurers who want to continue to inflate their profits Mm -hmm. and so you know you've seen this from the late 1990s this cost shift cost shift to patients and as it gets worse and worse and worse hopefully we will kind of see that rebellion from the from the masses to help kind of change the way they need to do things and obviously um, as you said, Kiefer, you know, patients need to take responsibility. Uh, you know, I, people come into the office with their insurance card and think that it's, they have carte blanche, and that, that, that's got to change as well. I mean, I, I think I, I give the analogy. If you go to the grocery store and um, you've got a, you're going to the grocery store for milk, and then you're at the checkout center, and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to throw this filet mignon on for free because I just want to have it. I mean, that's what we have right now. 
So, um, but it, you know, it's going to change no matter what because, you know, like you said, the system is unsustainable. It, it totally is, and I, I will say this: that I, I thought it was kind of a tough slog, like convincing people that saturated fat was not going to kill you, and that you know maybe mm-hmm. gluten might be problematic for some people and everything. But <coughs> that is nothing compared to getting people to think about economics and healthcare oh, and, yeah. and not just just lose their minds. Like the, things slide to a um, an emotional knee-jerk reaction state like faster than talking about religion it is shocking and it it, uh it's um yeah it's it's just interesting and you know even in paleo land like i can get people kind of rallied around like uh you know uh, down with monsanto or whatever and talk about Mm -hmm. some market-based stuff around that but then you start talking about uh you know the market element of medicine and third-party payer systems and stuff like that and it's like you just want to put old people in the street to die. And, you know, <laughs> wow, man. It's like, no, I want to make it like before Medicare started when no old people were, were turned away from healthcare because we had enough profitability that, you know, doctors and hospitals could, could take uninsured people and, and absorb that, that, uh, that load. And it was really not a big deal. Uh, right. it, and Rocky, you, you, you've got to know this, like in, in real and inflate even in non-inflation adjusted terms uh, many general practitioners and, and particularly specialists make less now than what they did in the 1980s and then when you inflation adjust that like they're literally making three to four times less for doing more work than what what they used to do which is part of the reason why uh, uh, you know doctors are leaving medicine in the droves like right now they're they're better off going and consulting for a pharmaceutical company or a nutraceutical company or something they don't have the liability and they they get paid better well you know as you know working with doctors is like herding cats right and no one's on the same page they're we're all kind of in it for ourselves we're not a group that tend to coagulate together well and work together well and you know i think the problem is from a marketing standpoint you know the marketing ministry from doctors is all oh, they're driving their Cadillac and they got their boathouse and you know this is what the this is what the perception is and like you said the perception's farthest from the truth you know we do make less than we do before I, I guess I always pose the question if you worked for 15 years at a place and never got a raise um, even though you were producing and doing your best job would you stay at that place of work and obviously the answer is no but you know physicians have been kind of in this position for a long time. You know, and, and again, you, like you said, the third parties are, are one of the issues because you're kind of at the beck and call. So um, right. hopefully as we can, I, I think there are some good things from the healthcare reform. We know there's certainly bad things, but I think if anything, it's really kind of changed the focus on instead of providing units of care, um, trying to provide units of quality of care, because then you can maybe shift numbers down and, and improve costs. The question is how you do it. And that's really the, the, the magic, magic question. Right. Well, Kiefer, I, I don't know if this is going to be uh, a good podcast or possibly the end of your <laughs> podcast, right? It's like, oh, we had one and nobody ever wanted to listen to it again. Right. So. Uh, you know, I, as far as my audience is concerned, I, I actually almost don't even really care at this point. It was, it was a good conversation. And these are the topics that need to be out there. People act like, well, if we change our diet, then this is one thing. It's like it's a big integrated problem. It's not just you know, the people on the fringes changing their diet because, you know, as just a matter of fact, the healthier I am and the more I can produce, that means the more that I'm going to have to pay to help the people who are unhealthy and who can't produce and who keep getting more unhealthy. It's not just about me. You know, it really is about our society as a whole right now. You know, everybody needs to be focused on this idea of we need to fix the system because every single person's welfare in the future, you know, financial and just the stability of our country really depends on that. This this isn't just a like I'm out for myself. This is we really need to start having some sweeping changes or else everybody's going to pay, pay for it. And maybe you're not going to pay for it with diabetes or, you know, having a horrible later 20 years of your life but you're going to pay for it out of your checkbook you're going to pay for it you know not being able to help your kids go to college or any of those things you know you're going to pay for it with jobs not being available because everybody's sick so businesses are getting run out of out of customers and everything else you know this 
this is like a huge problem and that's one of the annoying things in the fitness community and one reason I'm moving away from it is you know everybody's just kind of out for themselves and then you've got the general public that are just kind of happy with the status quo it's so much easier to take a pill even if you don't know what it does than it is to try to change your lifestyle and you know the there needs to be just this kind of more holistic focus on every aspect of it it's not just about calories in calories out and whose arguments better there it's not just about okay gluten-free or totally ketogenic or you know monsanto has this monopoly on corn and they're running the little farmers out of business you know it's all one big problem and health insurance to me is kind of the nexus of that because that's where we can really see the costs and the burdens that are being put onto the country right now. I, I completely agree. <laughs> I completely agree. But it's, uh, man, I, I, you know, if I were, it, so I'll, I'll throw something out there. I've had these online debates with folks, which, you know, is possibly an idiotic endeavor, but occasionally <laughs> right. I, I think some good comes out of it. But uh, 22 times, I've made it an offer to uh, folks that, that were really fighting me on this market-based deal, and I threw out an offer to them if they bought this book from the Cato Institute called Healthy Competition. The book costs like 11 bucks. If they, if they bought it and they shot me uh, proof of receipt that they bought the book, didn't even have to read it, just buy it, I would pay them 100 bucks. And I've only, out of 22 offers on that, I've only had two people ever take me up. Wow. And yeah, and, and, <laughs> and you know, the. the so, you know, which I was, you know, and these people are arguing for, for what I would call a little bit more of like a central planning, maybe kind of socialized healthcare kind of gig. And I, I've actually mm -hmm. spent a lot of time in Sweden and Denmark, and I understand the socialized medical scene there actually really, really well. And it's very laudable in many ways the way that they roll it out. But even those folks are having some problems as they have like a demographic bulge change. They used to have a lot of young people that were paying for a small group of older people and now that is completely shifting right. where there's going to be a large group of older people and small group of younger people so i what i've discovered and this is shockingly quite similar to talking about physics uh, uh history of the or, or age of the earth a whole variety of things um people form these opinions with absolutely no education on the topic <laughs> They don't know what the fuck they're talking about and so right. I, I would really encourage people like whatever you know, side of this story that you stand on, um, it, I would really encourage you to buy this book, Healthy Competition, it's 11 bucks. And it's a perspective that's market-based, kind of libertarian, you may agree with it, you may disagree with it. If you disagree with it, then it behooves you to at least know what I'm going to be arguing about. And and I hope that someday uh, somebody, you know, with this stuff, so let, let's just say, you know, bringing this back around to the beginning of the show, uh, let's say that the whole story of healthcare comes down to resistant starch and restoring our gut bacteria and protein carbs that don't matter. Let, let's just throw it out there and say that that may be the case. So I, I've advocated uh, differently in the past. I would be forced to grow and change and, and modify my views and, and all that stuff. Um, I'm still waiting for somebody that can show me a, a good example of how the third party payer system works, of how like this uh, more socialized medical system works. Um, so you need to be able to at least talk to me and people like me in terms that I understand and uh, uh, with, with the history base that I, I've studied. And so even if you completely disagree with me, if we're gonna have a conversation about this and move this whole thing forward so that you can prove to me that I'm wrong, um, we've gotta have some common ground, some common uh, uh, epistemology, I guess, so that, or, or you know, an understanding of each other's epistemology so that we can interface about this topic and, and try to do something. So it's 11 bucks. I have no no uh, horse in the game other than I'm trying to get people to do some reading and, and talk about this. I will say that the two people that were arguing with me on this topic, they bought the book, I gave them 100 bucks, and they have completely reversed their position on <laughs> the whole healthcare story after reading this book. So, Well, yeah, I mean, the, that's the great thing about education is usually it helps to bring people to the more logical conclusion or choice. That's not always the case. Um, but, you know, when you analyze these things and you start going into detail, you can pretty quickly start to see the failings and you have a hard time arguing against them at that point. Um, and I, I think that's where we're starting to get with the human body, too. You know, it's the same kind of conversation. Several years ago, everybody's arguing about every different thing and that's kind of what's going on now but 
we we are starting to have enough information to say this is how it works we know this is how the body works at the cellular level and we can take that a step up and we know for a fact this is how it works at the next level and you know you can scale that all up and come up with at least a more viable direction to study to see if there's a positive outcome and you at least know that the foundation that you're building on is a secure one and you know that that's exactly what you're talking about here when you really go go down and you analyze what's better this third-party payer system or kind of a, a a free economy so to speak in the healthcare world you know what models do we know work and what models do we know don't work and we would rather choose or at least i assume we would rather choose the models that we know already have a good track record um, which is not socialized healthcare, which is not this third-party payer system. The, those really don't have good track records. So there must be another alternative model that we could look at that does have a good track record. And it doesn't necessarily have to be healthcare-related. It could be something else. But what we want to know is, will the model work, and is it worth exploring? And, man, things are so bad right now, I'd say almost any model is worth exploring. Go ahead, Rob. Oh, go for it, Doc. Go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, we were on, before we even got on, we were talking about this in respect to diet. And, you know, you have so many people out there. It's that blind, you know, the blinders on the head, you know, syndrome, so to speak. You're not willing to even just take the blinders off for a brief moment to even consider the other side. So, you know, that that's something that always has to be overcome in whatever debate you're trying to, you know, present a point in, you know. Totally. Totally. And, you know, folks wanted something easy uh, not even the uh, onerous, uh, uh, you know, challenge of ordering an eleven dollar book off of Amazon. They, <laughs> right. they could just do do some googling around this uh, this thing called the Singapore healthcare model. And uh, Singapore uses a health savings account model. Even the poor uh, are are given uh, instead of just like a, a carte blanche uh, disbursement, or you know, the way say like Medicare and Medi-Cal and, and stuff like that works, where there's mm -hmm. all kinds of third party payer stuff. People actually have an account that the government deposits money into, and then that money is those folks' money to to spend on healthcare. And if if they get a better job and their financial situation changes, that money goes with them. And the, the uh, health savings accounts are tax deferred; they're inheritable. Um, you can use them for uh, healthcare issues while what you know uh, in your your younger years. You can use it for healthcare and living issues in your older years, and and it's still tax deferred. It, what it what it does is it just guts all of the the uh, also they have price transparency. So you know, hospitals have to advertise their prices for everything. Testing labs have to advertise their prices for everything, so that people can can uh, you know uh, uh, price compare and quality compare and, and shop around a little bit. Uh, th there is some state sponsored healthcare options. Uh, these low-cost uh, clinics where people can go, but the clinics have to be competitive with um, a, a general market-based entities. So even though they're subsidized a bit, they, they are not set up in such a way that they undermine the, the general uh, market scene. And, and you know, I don't want to go too deep into it because people probably don't yet give too much of a shit about it, right. but it's, a, it's another place that they can go do some digging on this and get kind of educated, so yeah. Let's... So Kiefer had no idea I was going to do resistant starch or turn this into a political rant. Sorry, yeah, dude. <laughs> no. Actually, I had I'm a never little. Never bringing Rob on again. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little bit of a clue that it could have gone political because our last conversation. I I think that's how we ended that podcast too. We we circled back yeah. around to the yeah. politics. So, you know, and, and to be honest, it's first and forefront. You know, in in my mind, and to be honest, it's ninety nine percent of the reason I do this is. You know, I don't want to live in a country where the country itself is financially sick because the population is so sick. Um, and, you know, whatever small part I can do to, to help alleviate that, fantastic. Whatever larger parts I can do, I, I would be, you know, very excited to contribute to those too. But, you know, I'm just kind of starting where I can. And it's, it's really a big concern for me. You know, I don't want to be 45 years old, which is coming up pretty soon, and be like, okay, which country should I move to to avoid the problems that the United States are, is having? Um, you know, I just, I don't really want to do that. This this is, seems like a pretty good place to uh, hang my hat. So so I, th I think it's poignant, and I think hopefully the audience won't tune out 
30 minutes into this, which is about when we started talking about the politics. So, <laughs> <clears throat> Well, what, what else do you guys want to talk about? Or do you want to, do you want to run before I crack open something else? Nutcase. <laughs> totally what? alienate everybody. Actually, we, we've actually been talking for about an hour or so. That's uh, pr- pretty much what I'm going to limit myself to these days on these podcasts. Cause the two hours was just, Man, it was too much for people to ingest, I think. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, it's a huge honor to be on your, your inaugural podcast again. I hope that I didn't tank it right out of the gate. I, I probably brought property <laughs> values down to uh, like 2007 levels here. So, so apologies in advance for that. Well, so so here we go. Maybe, um, all right, do you know anything about, um, well, I'm sure you do. Have you, have you been keeping up with all the fructose scare and the high fructose corn syrup? I, you know, I, I, I was initially, but I, I honestly have kind of peeled out of that to, to some degree and, and uh, have not really stayed up on it super tightly now. Okay. I, well, what I was going to suggest is that we get you back on in like a month or two and go down that rabbit hole because that's, that's been my new pet peeve, which unfortunately I was on that bandwagon before, you know, villainizing fructose, but I am definitely no longer on that bandwagon. So, Cool. Cool. I, I'd be honored to come back on and we, we can uh, chew the fat on that. And I, I promise there will be uh, nothing political in that one. We'll keep it purely uh, uh, protein, carbs, fat. <laughs> okay, that works. Even that's political, Rob. You know that. <laughs> right. Come on. Even that's right. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Well, you know, very much, especially around the holiday season, thanks for getting on the call with us. And, you know, to be, to be honest, I'm the one who's honored that you were uh, willing to come on and, and do my first relaunch of the podcast which you know like i said you might have actually killed it uh, as you've suggested a few times but that's fine <laughs> only time will tell um but i can spend the next few weeks trying to uh mend that a little bit do, do some damage control right. yeah, get somebody interesting on here like nate mayaki or something yeah, yeah. there you go <laughs> all right well have a good holiday and uh thanks again it's, it's always you guys a pleasure too. To talk take to care you. yeah thanks rob all right okay. bye Bye-bye. been listening to Body IOFM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance. I'm never sure if people are going to hang up afterwards or not. I'm, I'm still there. Okay. okay. <laughs>